Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome everybody to the first GAI research seminar for 2022. It's nice to be back and back in person in the room and all of, all of that. I'm standing in for Ian today and to some extent Caitlin as well, who can't be here. It's my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Danielle Ireland-Piper who is an Associate Professor of Law at Bond University. Danielle has a PhD from the University of Queensland and an LLM from Cambridge and is the author of Extraterritoriality in East Asia and Accountability in Extraterritoriality, as well as a whole lot of other publications on related topics in constitutional law, public international law, space law and human rights law. Danielle also has experience working in government roles and in private legal practice. So we're really pleased that you could come up from Bond today. Over to you. So before I get started properly, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians. Being done at Bond, our traditional custodians are the Kumbumberi saltwater peoples who've, as we know, have had guardianship and custodianship of the land for thousands of years. But here on the Nathan campus, I understand there are four different groups. So forgive me for having to read them out because I had to remember four, but understand Nathan campus has the Yurugabal people, Yugara people, Jagara people and Turrbal peoples. And of course they've been custodians of the land and wildlife for many years and as a lawyer I feel it's incumbent on me to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and nor as a matter of Aboriginal law could it ever be so. And to acknowledge any First Nations peoples present. Also just to thank Caitlin and Ian for the invitation even though neither could make it. I'm very grateful <laughs> that Renee was able to host me and also just to acknowledge my colleague Narelle who's also from Bond. Can I just sort of get a feel, I understand given the faculty that we're in that most people here would be experts in international relations, public policy, governance. Is that everyone in the... Yeah. International business. International business. Yep. Okay, cool. So essentially we're a non-legal audience, which is a compliment, by the way. That's a compliment. Um, <laughs> much nicer audience than a legal one. So I'm going to try not to make this too boringly legal, but I guess I just wanted to take that moment to situate extraterritoriality in the context of policy and governance and international relations and international business and why it would even matter to a non-lawyer. But essentially extraterritoriality means outside territory. Primarily, historically speaking, the Westphalian system considered territory to be the boundary of a state's authority. And ultimately, jurisdiction, assertions of jurisdiction, is a question of public authority. How much authority does that nation-state have to regulate things outside its borders? And traditionally, that was considered quite narrow. But as people became more mobile businesses became more interconnected. Essentially, we're all living cross-border lives, even when we're not. Even when we're in lockdown and our borders are closed, we're still on Zoom making arrangements with people from other places. And we have citizens in some places, and we, I'm sure you've all know somebody who has more than one citizenship, and you yourself may have more than one citizenship. So our lives are inherently cross-border which is an easier way to say extraterritoriality, so much flipped cross-border. Our lives are inherently cross-border, and so it matters. It matters politically, because often assertions of authority outside of states' borders are as much a political question as they are a legal question. And it matters because it can... At, at international law, there's no hierarchy for resolving claims to authority over conduct that happens outside borders. 
And so that can lead to a rise in international tensions. So, for example, some of you might be familiar with the... It depends which country you ask what the case is called. In India, it's called the Italian Marines case. In Italy, it's called the Indian Fisherman case. And essentially what happened there is that some Italian Marines on a merchant ship mistook some Indian fishermen in India's not territorial waters but in the contiguous zone for pirates and killed them. And so India asserted jurisdiction to prosecute for murder those Italian Marines. And it actually caused a contest of jurisdiction because... Sorry? When was this? About 2012 to 2015, oh, the case went on. It actually went to the Permanent Court of Arbitration in the end, and, and Italy withdrew its ambassadors Yeah, over it. But this is just an example how a simple assertion of criminal jurisdiction caused tension between states. Italy withdrew its ambassadors at one point, and they ended up in the Permanent Court of Arbitration because Italy claimed jurisdiction on the basis that the perpetrators were their nationals, India claimed jurisdiction on the basis the victims were the nationals, and then there was a law of the sea issue about who has authority and sovereignty outside of territorial waters, which is the 12 nautical miles, but between 12 nautical miles and 200 nautical miles, which is the exclusive economic zone. So there was an interesting law of the sea issue that the fact that India could regulate, for example, fishing and passage in that place should mean that they have jurisdictional authority. So something really nerdy, like jurisdiction, ended up actually having big consequences for international relations. Another example I'll give you to situate the issue as being relevant beyond a legal question, although it's inextricably connected, in my view, international law and international relations, is a case called Motti and the Queen. Some of you may have heard loosely of this one. The short story, it's a long story actually, but the short story is that Motti had dual nationality, both Australian nationality and, I believe, nationality of the Solomon Islands, and became Attorney General of the Solomon Islands and had an anti-Australia position. And so this is common knowledge because when the case came to court in Australia, the Commonwealth released its cables. And there were cables from DFAT saying, find something on him. We need a way to destabilise his position. We don't agree with his politics. And so it had emerged that there was an accusation that he had engaged in a sexual activity with someone under the age of 16. Now, because he's an Australian citizen, our Crimes Act has a provision that says some of these crimes will follow an Australian citizen wherever they are. So even though the conduct occurred outside Australia's borders, because that crime has extraterritorial application, you can also be prosecuted for it, even though it happened outside of Australia. And common law countries like Australia, India, the UK, US, Canada, for example, all tend to do this on an ad hoc basis. So they'll say, these crimes, we're going to say, Australian citizen, wherever you are, you'll be accountable for your actions. And they tend to be stuff that you would not find surprising, such as, for example, terrorism, money laundering, child sex tourism, those sorts of things. Transnational organised crime stuff, basically. In any event, they went after Moti for this offence of a child sexual offence on the basis of his Australian citizenship and went to the Solomon Islands to get him ostensibly. And they sort of messed up a little bit because it couldn't have been an extradition, it had to be a deportation, and the Solomon Islands agreed to hand him over, but he had 14 days under the law of the Solomon Islands to appeal whereas the AFP took him onto the plane and brought him back to Australia before that period where he could have appealed happened. And so it landed before the High Court on a really interesting legal issue, and that is, can we question the acts of other states 
where normally there's this doctrine called the Act of State Doctrine that says that you can't, can we question the acts of foreign states like allowing a deportation if there's an abusive process? And so in the course of that happening, all this stuff came out about essentially a legal issue, something not innocuous, I don't mean that to dismiss the seriousness of a child sexual offence, but something that was not really related to foreign policy as such and not particularly related to foreign policy between Australia and Solomon Islands, actually came a provision that was quite pivotal in that relationship for a while. And so I got interested in this topic when I was working for the Australian government and doing extraditions and realising that these things are partly legal, but they're also really political. And if you're trying to extradite someone from one country to another, the, the question of their citizenship comes up. Not all countries will hand over their citizens. So, for example, a French national who commits a crime against an Australian in Australia, as you're probably familiar with because of the Greenpeace case way back when, Rainbow Warrior, they don't like to hand their nationals over, right? So that can come into it. And also there's this requirement, if you're asking for someone to come to you for trial for something they did outside a border, then the country of their citizenship or the country of their residence also has to make that conduct a criminal offence. It's called dual criminality. So it becomes this really murky sort of almost power dynamic in terms of whether people are handed over or not. And then it also raises human rights issues in the sense that I'm sure, like I said before, we all know people who have multiple nationalities and actually the laws of one country could be governing you because of whom you're interacting with and you might not know. And so you can actually be subject to multiple prosecutions for multiple actions and often the nature of these crimes is quite political. And the prohibition against double jeopardy, and I'm getting a bit legal, but I'm sure you all know what that is, right? So the prohibition against double jeopardy only applies within one country, not as between them. So you can actually, as a matter of law, both international and domestic, be prosecuted for the same crime in multiple countries if countries are asserting extraterritorial authority over your conduct. So, you know, think Julian Assange, if you like. That's sort of just to contextualise why this technical jurisdictional issue does have broader implications for international relations. And I certainly came across it when I was doing policy work for the Australian government of the politics of this. I've sort of recapped the scene for you there. I just want to touch on that point B. There are challenges to contemporary ideas about jurisdiction being only within a border except for a number of grounds. And these are probably quite self-evident, but one of them is the internet. So cybercrime, where is cybercrime happening? Who has jurisdictional authority to regulate it? Uh, cyber warfare, for example, cyber attacks, and also a human activity in outer space. So there is an extraterrestrial element to this, and that's because you may have seen in the news, it's sort of funny that the first crime in space was a crime of passion in a way, because the first crime in space was allegedly committed by someone accessing their ex-spouse's bank account illegally from the International Space Station. And so the question was, whose criminal law applies to that crime? Because there's an International Space Station treaty, and then there are segments of the space station where Japan's law applies, or Canadian law applies, or American law applies. And then you have the nationality of the perpetrator, and then you have the nationality of the victim. And depending how political the crime is, then you can get a contest between states as to who should regulate that thing. So some contemporary challenges there. And also some debates about whether we should have more extraterritoriality or less extraterritoriality. Some scholars say it makes sense in a world that's inextricably connected. And if you think about notions of cosmopolitanism and the idea that we owe duties to people in other states 
then arguably we should all just be turning into territoriality all the time. Those who urge restraint say, well, really, it actually undermines meaningful multilateralism if you've got states asserting their authority on a unilateral basis all the time rather than in a cooperative treaty-based sense. And then also that there are concerns... The Malti case I, I mentioned is also a perfect example of a state using a, a relatively straightforward legal provision to assert its foreign policy objectives and the power play that comes at that. And also a human rights perspective in terms of fair trial rights. So this may surprise you, it certainly surprised me, but most constitutional protections when it comes to fair trial rights and search and seizure and stuff like that will only protect a citizen within the state and not extraterritorially although the state's authority can extend extraterritorially. So, for example, in Canada and the US, there have been two cases that say, yeah, constitutional protections for a child stuff doesn't actually apply to you because your crime was committed extraterritorially. However, the authority of the state to regulate your extraterritorial competence is accepted. So it's like states can have their cake and eat it too, and it creates an accountability gap. Now, what might you say has this got to do with East Asia? I'm actually basing this talk very loosely off my book last year, which is Extraterritoriality in East Asia. I'd just like to acknowledge my co-authors, Sandra Gao, Machiko Kanatake, and Hite Bay. Basically, there is no literature in the English language on extraterritoriality in anywhere, really, other than a little bit in South America, mostly North America and Europe. Now, you're probably familiar, but... Under international law, a source of law is what states do. So it's called customary international law and it can create a binding norm. And customary international law is constituted by the practice of states and what states believe they are bound to do. Now, if we are looking at the international law of jurisdiction and the basis on which someone can assert jurisdiction and we're only looking at the practice of North American and European states, we are having a distorted picture of what the law actually is, what the emerging international law norms are. So I decided that we should look at East Asia, and I'm sure I don't need to explain to this audience the significance of the region geopolitically, economically, and so on. I think a broadly conceived definition of Asia includes 60% of the world's population. I don't need to tell this audience of emerging GDPs and what have you. And so I think it was a real problem that there was a gap there. The elephant in the room is I don't speak Mandarin or South Korean or uh, <laughs> Japanese. And so I was very lucky to have three co-authors agree to do the writing with me which meant that we actually got to read the judgments in their first languages as opposed to me reading English translations of it. And it also meant we got to find more obscure, small cases that no one would think to translate into English anyway. So just to acknowledge those three authors. <coughs> this, but just to recap this bit, when I was talking about the basis of jurisdiction under international law, I've talked a lot about nationality and how a state can assert its authority outside its borders if the victim or the perpetrator is a national. And the example of the Monty case in the Solomon Islands is an example of what they call active nationality, where it's its citizen doing the crime, therefore it's taking responsibility. But the passive one where your national is the victim is actually really controversial and is actually left out of the Harvard draft on principles of jurisdiction. They left it out. If you read European and American literature, you would think that that is a no-no. And so one thing I found in this research is that Japan, South Korea and China, despite being markedly different constitutional systems, markedly different legal systems, although of course they have historical things in common, 
all, without even a blink, it's just accepted that there is passive nationality. So in each of China, Japan and South Korea, each of them says that if you commit crimes against our nationals, we can prosecute you. It's all prosecutorial discretion. And as I'll show you, the grounds for which China can do that are much broader. South Korea and Japan tend to be focused on very particular crimes. But that changes everything, because the whole narrative in international law is that passive nationality isn't a thing. It is a thing in Southeast Asia and East Asia. And so we've been thinking about rules incorrectly. Universal jurisdiction, just to recap, that's war crimes, piracy stuff. So the idea that wherever a war crime was committed, by whomever, against whomever, every country in the planet can prosecute it. So, for example, France has prosecuted at least six cases of the DRC conflict, even though it wasn't on French territory and they weren't French nationals, and Belgium as well. They'll often do uh, war crimes prosecutions. And protective principle and effects doctrine sort of sound like what they sound like. So protective principle is, you know, treason, forgery, flags, national security type stuff where, for example, if you desecrate a UK flag, wherever you are in the planet, you've committed an offence against under UK law and they could technically prosecute you for it. If the practical stuff's met, like, they can get hold of you. And effects, effects doctrine is really controversial because, as you can imagine, in an interconnected world, everything affects everything. So the idea that a nation-state could assert authority on that basis is pretty controversial, but it's mostly done in antitrust, so you might be familiar with antitrust laws but basically anti-competition laws. A lot of states will say, well, your corporate practice affected our market fairness, so we will go after you anyway, even though it has nothing to do with our jurisdiction. Often again, it's an enforcement policy, right? I won't go into too much detail on that, just in the interest of time, but there's an interesting question about the obligation, not just the right to assert extraterritorial authority, is there an obligation to do so? So some people say, well, you might recall Australia made legislation saying if you're a foreign fighter and you go participate in another country's uh, war overseas, we will revoke your citizenship. And some people say, myself actually included, <laughs> that's an abdication of your responsibility, your obligation to take responsibility for the behaviours of your citizens. Actually what you're doing is you're setting people loose in areas where they're least, at that time, least equipped to prosecute behaviour properly, and really you should take responsibility for the behaviour of your citizens and bring them home and prosecute if you have the means to do so, rather than allowing for impunity. Some people also make that case in relation to Julian Assange too, that Australia could bring him home and that would sort of solve it. Except we have an extradition treaty for the US, so probably not. So I'll just say that, and also that just on the principles of jurisdictional restraint, from a legal perspective, there just isn't much restraint. Like I said before, constitutional protections only apply to domestic crimes sometimes, not extraterritorial ones, so there's a real cake and eat it too. So just to kick off to China, this was super interesting and, and probably sounds super naive on my behalf. I was just saying to Norella, of course, when I, when I thought about it, but my first step with each of the countries was to say, well, what are their constitutions, what do their authorities say about the authority of the state to act extraterritorially, to assert its authority outside its borders? A lot of cases in South Korea and in Japan, but in China it's a different conception of the separation of powers and a different conception of judicial review. So the short answer is Chinese courts don't consider the authority of the state. The authority of the state is presumed from a legal perspective. So the question of extraterritorial competence is actually not a legal issue in China. In Australia it is. Australia, an Australian court would say, well, does the court have authority to do that on what basis and try and fit it into one of those grounds? Same in South Korea and Japan a little bit. 
but Chinese courts don't do that. So what a Chinese court will do when it gets a case about an extraterritorial offence is it will look at the nature of the offence and who's involved and decide whether a crime has been committed, as opposed to did the state have the authority to assert jurisdiction over something that happened outside its borders. So it's, it's uncontested. So that's, that's an interesting point because it's a very permissive context for extraterritorial authority. The Constitution itself says that the Chinese state will protect and includes legal avenues to protect um, Chinese interests and the interests of Chinese nationals. And then that's backed up by an article in their criminal code. So the short answer to that is that most crimes, there's about 400 offences in that relevant code, will be applied, it's a prosecutorial discretion issue, but can be applied to a foreign national if the victim is Chinese. So 400 offences is quite a lot. It does seem to be a more of a political discretion issue rather than a constitutional issue. So, for example, there was an incident called the Mekong Massacre where a Burmese national was extradited to China for murdering Chinese citizens outside of China and was prosecuted and, and did receive the ensuing penalty. Whereas there was another incident in the UK where there were 50 Chinese nationals died in the back of a lorry and China chose not to prosecute the UK nationals. So even though they have the extraterritorial authority to do so, it's clearly a matter of discretion, and that's where the international relations factor comes in. So probably the main observations to make about China is that it's a very permissive context. It's certainly contemplated that the protective principle and that passive nationality principle, it's just business as usual. And it was just so interesting seeing that, because if you read law from Europe or commentary on this issue from Europe or North America, it's like, our oh, passive nationality isn't a thing. And it's like, well, it is. It is a thing. And so that changes the nature of the international norm that's evolving because it looks like there's an increasing number of states that take that approach. So it's quite permissive. Japan takes a slightly different approach in the sense that rather than saying we have extraterritorial authority over most crimes, what they say is that if one constituent element of the crime takes place in Japan, then it won't be considered extraterritorial in the first place. So if you think about that in a cyber context, say you're selling something illegal and the ISP is accessible in Japan, that would be enough for it to be considered actually Japanese territory as opposed to an extraterritorial issue. So I won't go into too much detail about these breaking them down, but there's some really interesting cyber stuff in Japan. And again, in Japan, the courts have questioned the extraterritorial competence of Japanese parliaments to legislate extraterritorially. And unlike China, where that authority is presumed, they generally have to hang it on some ground. But then their workaround has always been, but it's not actually extraterritorial if one element of the offence, like the purchaser or the buyer or something happened in Japanese territory, even accessing a server, for example. So really interesting issues arising there in terms of how active we all are on cyber and which law is applying to you. You might actually be in Japanese territory and not actually realise it. South Korea, the basis of extraterritoriality in South Korea is contested by the courts. So they will say whether they had authority or not. But again, same with Japan, same with China, same with South Korea, all of them have passive personality jurisdiction. So China is over pretty much everything in the criminal code. If you commit any of those offences against a Chinese citizen, you have committed a, an offence against Chinese law. 
The only exception to that, just to recap, with China is where the offence would attract less than three years imprisonment. So it only applies to, I guess, more serious offences. They don't assert it over three years or less. In South Korea, the question actually becomes about the nature of the crime. So, for example, at the time of writing in South Korea, things like adultery, abortion and gambling are still illegal in South Korea. And so there's been some really interesting cases as to whether those offences could be enforced as against non-nationals in Korea where they hail from jurisdictions where, for example, adultery isn't a criminal offence or gambling isn't a criminal offence, and the answer is yes. It doesn't matter where you're from if you're in South Korean territory, law applies. And then similarly, um, whether or not that applies to South Korean nationals when they are overseas. So if they are gambling or engaging in activities related to abortion or adultery, and the answer is yes, they can. And again, it seems to be a bit more prosecutorial discretion. And having actually worked in extradition myself once upon a time, extradition is inherently political. Like, I'm not speaking, I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn to say that sometimes when we're requesting an extradition, DFAT would ask us not to. <laughs> Can you just hold off a week, maybe, <laughs> before you ask about this person, right? So it is inherently political, but... We also know that notions of citizenship are inherently more complicated in this day and age too. We only need to cast our mind back a few years ago to the situation in the Australian Parliament where all of a sudden they were falling like dominoes. It was like, oh, they've actually got Canadian citizenship or Greek citizenship or New Zealand, right? Yeah. So given that laws can apply extraterritorially on all these bases then citizenship becomes very relevant as well in terms of who you're interacting with, who's, who's the perpetrator, who's the victim, and then which law will apply. And so in the Lockerbie, I'm assuming you probably would remember Lockerbie, for those who might not, it was Libyan nationals that were flying over Scotland and there was a high proportion of American citizens on board. So they actually ended up, there's a lot of claims, as you can imagine, that would be five different legal systems wanting a bite at that. And the solution, as you might remember, was Scottish law, but held in The Hague, is how they sort of got around that. So in some ways, it's an opportunity for nation states, including those engaging with East Asian states, because although there are some legal frameworks, it's ultimately a relational issue. There's opportunities there for cooperation and for sort of tit for tat and oh, well, we'll hand over this national view to this. On the other hand, if you're an individual who's a bit unpopular, who's an accused person, there's lots of different ways in which you could be vulnerable to multiple prosecutions. Not least because, as I mentioned, under human rights law, the protection against double jeopardy only protects you within a state, not as between them. So you could actually be subject to multiple prosecutions, and the way probability works is that you're more likely to get prosecuted the more times you are prosecuted. So um, it raises a whole heap of issues around that too. So there, there's opportunities and challenges around the regulation and all these things. Ultimately, what I was trying to do in the book was to work out whether there are any commonalities, like any convergence. Is there an East Asian approach to extraterritoriality? Or is that just completely oversimplifying three very different legal systems and three very different nations with different international relations and whatever? But it turns out I think that there is. I think there is an East Asian flavour of, of extraterritoriality, and that is, firstly, that it's very much a question of prosecutorial discretion. But also, actually, what I found really interesting is that all courts, so courts in China, Japan and South Korea, 
all engaged with principles of international law in the judgments. Even in Chinese courts where they weren't necessarily contesting the authority of the state to act extraterritorially, they were just applying facts to an offence. Even then, they would look to questions of international law. For example, in China, the constitution essentially impliedly allows for self-executing treaties. So when China signs an international treaty, it self-executes itself and is then part of Chinese law and courts will look at it particularly when it comes to universal jurisdiction and law of the sea stuff. South Korea, definitely. South Korea courts were using decisions of the United Nations Human Rights Committee to work out whether or not extraterritorial jurisdiction should be applied. And Japan has a treaty provision. Now, what I find really interesting about this, right, is that actually, as an Australian constitutional law scholar, that's my other thing, Australian courts have such, I think, I'd call it a recalcitrant approach to international law. They're really nervous of it. So the High Court will often go, oh, international law, I don't want to touch it. I'll defer to Parliament, let them do what they want. And we have what's called a dualist approach, which means that we, as a question of law, do not consider international law to be part of Australian law unless it's specifically implemented in a domestic act. Whereas each of these three nations, the courts were much happier and much more comfortable to integrate. They weren't decisive. I'm not saying that the utopia of compliance with international law, but the courts were much more willing to integrate the actual terms of the treaties in making the decision about whether an offence had occurred, where it occurred, law of the sea stuff, um, jurisdictional stuff. All of them, particularly South Korea, as I said, were referencing UN uh, Human Rights Committee decisions. Now, Australia's been before the UN Human Rights Committee multiple times, mostly in relation to our treatment of asylum seekers and Indigenous peoples. And our courts are way more reticent in referencing international law than these three nations were. So that was actually an interesting convergence that I was not necessarily expecting, was the willingness of East Asian courts to see international law as a relevant, if not, not determinative in any sense, but as a relevant factor in judicial decision-making and legal decision-making which isn't always the case in Australia. And obviously the other point I mentioned is it's all about nationality principle in East Asia. That's not, I mean, it's not completely unusual. So, for example, countries like France, Belgium, Switzerland, every provision of their criminal code applies to their citizens when they're overseas. So, you know, if you're a French person in Australia, that French criminal code is following you. So it's not completely unusual, but in the region it's unusual. And also that it reliance on the passive nationality is, was really interesting because it's sort of seen as not a proper ground in so many places. But those who are advocating more extraterritoriality in addressing cybercrime, for example, or human activity in outer space, like it. And there you go, East Asia does it. And it's not even a thing. Like, it's not, oh, controversial, we're doing passive personality. It's just accepted as a standard basis for the state acting outside its borders to protect its nationals and to protect its national interests. The obvious divergence is just disability in the sense that the extraterritorial competence of the state can really only be questioned in a meaningful legal way in, of those three in South Korea. Japan a little bit, but really it's South Korea where there's contestation. Both the others have a very permissive constitutional context in that extraterritorial competence is presumed. The authority of the state is presumed. It's more about how and when it applies in an appropriate way rather than whether it does or not. And then just to make the point that, yeah, they had a slightly different attitude to international law and that decision-making with South Korea being very engaged, Japan being the least engaged and probably China in the middle there in terms of the way individual courts engage with international law. And the reason I find that interesting, right, is it's 
you know, as scholars, we can think about these principles in big picture, and as governments, we can think about these things in big picture. But often the actual norm is being created at lower courts, not even big fancy courts, just lower district regional courts by judges who aren't necessarily trained in international relations or international law, don't necessarily have access to intelligence information, but that is who is creating the norm. And so that's why I think it's actually quite interesting to look at these sort of lower middle domestic courts to see what it is that they're doing, because ultimately it seems small, but in an ad hoc way they're creating an international norm, a legal norm, which of course has consequences for the way that different states interact with the East Asian region and the global context in which extraterritoriality is seen. So I will finish there. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.